0: Well, it is a joy and a privilege, as always, to open up the Word of God to you this morning. This passage that we're going to be looking at, 1 Corinthians 29, is one that I've always enjoyed looking at until I started studying it. Then I found how difficult it was for me to study this one. But we'll get into that in a little bit, but we put uh, put a lot of importance in our last words. We remember when we said, I love you for the last time to a loved one. The, The famous last words of Jesus upon the cross, it is finished, resonate throughout history and into eternity. We just sang a few minutes ago that when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Often our last words are, what we want to be remembered by because we see them as a lasting legacy. And this morning we're going to look into the last words of one of the most prominent figures in all of Israel's history, King David. Now the writers of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles both choose a different event to conclude their account of David's life. And those final accounts give us a unique insight into what we can learn about and from him. 2 Samuel concludes where David's life ends with him failing one more time and showing us that he is clearly not the everlasting king that we were looking for. But 1 Chronicles, which we're going to be looking at today, ends with David taking up an offering in response to God's grace in his life. Now what's important to point out is that even though both writers chose a different event to summarize David's life, both accounts have David's last act being a response to the gospel. In 2 Samuel, after God stopped the plague, David buys this field where God had shown mercy to him and Israel, and he dedicates that land as the place for the building of the future temple. You can remember the story when David goes to Arana, the man who owned that field to buy it in 2 Samuel 24, and it records, Then Arana said to David, Let my lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Araunah gives to the king. Essentially, he's saying to David, Look, David, you can have it all for free. I'm giving it to you. But what's David's response? He says, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. That cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. This morning, though, in First Chronicles, we're going to see David taking up an offering for the building of that temple and that very spot. And praying a final prayer that encapsulates his gratitude and amazement for God's incredible grace. These last words of David reveal his heart and his ultimate focus and what he wants to be his final legacy. So if you haven't already turned there, turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 29. And we're going to prepare ourselves to hear what one commentator calls one of the most fervent and worshipful of all the prayers of praise and petition in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's saying a lot because they're talking about the guy who wrote most of the psalms. So before we get we're going to look into verses 10 and 10 through 22, but before we get there, let me set the stage for you. David has taken up a massive offering for the temple. He wanted to be the one to build the temple, but the Lord has said you're not allowed to. We see him saying to the officials of Israel in the previous chapter in 28. He said, "I had it in my heart to build a temple. Or to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. But God said to me, You will not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. So David's dream of building the temple is shattered. Instead, that responsibility is going to lie with his son Solomon, who, in his very words, as many fathers have probably said, is young and inexperienced. But David's going to pray for him later regarding that, and you'll see that as we get to that point. But David calls all the people of Israel to to be wholly dedicated to giving to the temple building project, and he leads by example with his own generosity. If you look in verses 3 and 4, you can see that. He gives from his own personal fortune to the building, a fortune almost immeasurable. He doesn't give out of... The, the kingly storage, the excess, the, the government accounts that, that he would have had control of. He doesn't give out of the state coffers. He gives out of his own personal fortune. And basically, he leaves nothing out. His offering is stunning. You can see the numbers there. And assuming a talent weighed about 75 pounds, which is what most scholars agree, this amount amounts to almost 112 tons of gold plus the 7,000 talents of silver, which would have been 260 tons of silver. The total worth of such precious metals has been estimated in the billions of dollars. And that's just what David gave. So the nation of Israel follows his example. 5,000 talents amounting to 187 tons of gold. Some of you ladies are freaking out over that. 10,000 talents of silver, which which would equal 375 tons of silver. 18,000 tons of iron. Get this, 3,750 tons of iron. The sum of all this is staggering and has been estimated in the billions and billions of dollars. The offering was massive. And it represented most a significant portion of the entire nation's economy being directed, think of this, into ministry. We could only imagine if our leaders invested our taxes like that. Solomon was going to be able to build this temple with an all cash in, no debt. And verse 9 says, The people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. This excitement and this massive offering is the backdrop for David's prayer and his final words to Israel. So let's read 1 Chronicles. Twenty-nine, ten through twenty. Follow along as I read. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, "Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the victory." And the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O oh Lord, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people, and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he might keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. We'll finish there for now. When all is said and done, at the end of David's life, he comes to this climactic moment of praise. He blesses the Lord and leaves a kingdom-focused legacy. He's not reflecting upon his own accomplishments. He's not letting everyone know the great things that he has done. He's not seeking to make a final, lasting name for himself. No, instead he stands before the whole assembly of Israel and blesses the Lord. And he looks to a kingdom that far exceeds the one that he is king over. The crux of his entire prayer is the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is not only an object of praise, but the source of the wealth from which the contributions have been made for the temple. Even David's petition at the end of this prayer are that a future generation might maintain the same attitude toward God and appeals to God's sovereignty in all things. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And so David teaches us what good, famous last words should look like. What legacy you want to be leaving behind. A life that is kingdom-focused. So he begins his prayer with a hymn of praise in verses 10 through 13. His legacy is in kingdom-focused praise. A kingdom-focused legacy begins with kingdom-focused focused praise david is a poet we know that verse and prose and and poetry just emanate from his pores he's eloquent he's well spoken and he opens as the only the way david could with a prayer with a hymn of praise very reminiscent to psalm 145 which pastor david read earlier in our service King David is kingdom of God focused. Not on his own kingdom, but the kingdom of God. You can already picture the scene. It's it's like an epic movie. The king, he's standing on a tower or high above all his subjects. He's got this mountain of precious materials and metals between him and a crowd so large and vast that the camera pans over to catch the magnitude of it. With this booming voice, David's expected to inspire the masses and the future generations. And he's looking at all this accumulated earthly wealth, the power and prestige that he holds in his hands before him. And his response is shocking because David does what? It says he blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And he breaks into a hymn of praise to God acknowledging his kingdom. Pastor Steve isn't afraid to get technical with you, and so I'm going to give you a little technical Hebrew poetry grammar lesson. Many of you have heard him use this term before, um, but verses 10 through 13 form what we call a chiastic structure. What that is is simple. It's like a poetic mirror, and I've got some Hebrew scholars in the back there. I see them, and it terrifies me right now. but it's like a poetic mirror. The first line of the, of the hymn reflects the last line, and, and the second line reflects the second to last line, and so on and so forth, until you kind of get to the middle, and that middle, in this case, the third line, is, is the clue to the whole central theme of the hymn. Uh, another way to think of it is like you're climbing a summit, you get to the top, and then it retraces those exact same steps, um, so, and, and, but the summit is the important part. That center point is what we need to find out what it is. But we need to start on the outsides. Verse 10b, really, and 13 reflect each other as declarations of praise. 10b says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. But then flip those couple verses and go to verse 13 and it says, And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Both these verses praise names of God, Yahweh, Elohim. David praises God's eternal nature and his covenant promises to Israel. David doesn't talk about himself or his own position and prestige. He says he doesn't say, look what I've pulled off. No, he praises the supreme ruler of all. And that's where he begins. But the next layer of this hymn is found in the first part of verse 11. And that reflects with the second half of verse 12 and expounds upon all that God possesses. He writes, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. But then he reflects that in the second half of verse 12. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. With tons and tons of gold, silver, iron, and precious stones laying in front of everyone, probably more than has ever been amassed in human history to that point and since that point. Think about that. David turns a blind eye to it all. These things pale in comparison in David's mind to the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty of God. But that's not even the central focus of the hymn. The central focus of this hymn is is smack dab in the middle of 11 or at the end of 11 in the beginning of verse 12. This is where David drives home the point, the end all, the be all, that it is the kingdom of God is his focus. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. David's looking at the incredible bounty that he's surrounded by and he's saying none of it comes from us. You God, you gave us all of this. It's a gift from you. It's all yours because yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. If verse 11 sounds familiar to you in a New Testament context, it should. Because no doubt Jesus would have had these words in mind when he was teaching the disciples to pray in Matthew 6. God is the supreme head and ruler in his kingdom. God's qualities are those of royalty and it's no surprise that the phrase yours is the power and the glory is directly associated with the kingdom in the Lord's prayer. This is supported by these two central verses, that climax, that peak. Verse 11 describes what belongs to God. All that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Verse 12 praises him for what he freely gives. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. It should be a great encouragement to you that the God who possesses everything also gives freely. He doesn't hoard it for himself. It reminds me of that wonderful old hymn, For me he died, for me he lives, an everlasting life and light he freely gives. It's because in his hand it is to make great and give strength to all. No wonder this is placed firmly in the context of all of Israel's praise, because how could you not praise him? The praise that we give is because he's not just the creator, but the commander of it all. He is the father and ruler of all. He possesses everything in heaven and in earth, for he created all of it. Kingdoms of this earth are ephemeral. They, they come and they go, but, but his kingdom is forever. David is leaving Israel and, and, and he's leaving us with this legacy, with this grand understanding of who God really is. He's big. He's worthy of all our praise. He's worthy of all thanksgiving. David leaves us with this legacy of a large, supreme, all-powerful view of God and his kingdom. Regarding this, this hymn, biblical scholar Eugene Merrill states that praise is followed by thanks, an intuitive corollary. Listen to this, God is praised not just because of who he is, though that is reason enough, but because of what he has done for his people in tangible ways. To fail to give thanks is to render the strongest pretensions at praise hollow and hypocritical. In other words, if we don't reflect and overflow with thanksgiving for God's character and his provision, our worship is incomplete. And so David goes from this well-structured, this, this great, grand hymn of praise, and he moves to this more ordinary form of, of prose. He just starts to spill over with thanksgiving. He leaves the poetic structure because it, it, he just can't be contained by poetry anymore. And from the praise of the kingdom, he extols um, the, the kingdom and, and it's all its provisions. The second lesson David teaches us about how to leave a kingdom-focused legacy is to have kingdom-focused provisions. And we see this in verses 14 through 16. When we have a proper biblical view of God, we then develop a proper biblical view of man. And this becomes clearly evident in this section. David and the people have brought their gifts And have given generously and willingly, but they had only given back what God had given them from his own hand. I think verse 14 is so important for our world today, the self-help world we live in, the world of self-made men, of social media influencers. If there's anyone who could boast about anything, it was David. After all, it's the only, he's the only one it has been said of was the man after God's own heart. And yet, David comes humbly before God and before the people of Israel and he states this, Who am I? What is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willing for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. David's not even given a humble brag here. And this isn't new for David. He genuinely thought of God, thought high of God. He thought great of God, but low of himself. He is recorded as asking, who am I elsewhere? Once he said it to Saul, the man who he'd be taking over and being the rightful king. He said it to Saul in 1 Samuel 18. Who am I and where are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that, that I should be a son in law of the king? He didn't even think he was worthy to be the son in law of the king. Once more, after the Lord makes the covenant with David, he replies, The king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? But most notably, he writes in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, what you have set in place, we have this big view of God. What is his response? His view of man. What is man? That you are mindful of him. And the son of man that you care for him. Anyone who has received from God a favor beyond anything that they could have hoped or their wildest expectations, which is every single one of us, cannot help but wonder how and why that could have happened. What good thing must we have done to put God under such obligation? An honest examination of your life will lead to the conclusion that what was happening is nothing short of the grace of God in your life, It's his undeserved favor towards you. This humbled, low view of man is not meant to make us walk around in in this moping self-deprecation, though. I mean, that would be terrible. Rather, it causes us to look to Christ. It causes us to look up and to praise him. We sang about this earlier. I, I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold. My sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. When we put the biblical view of man before us, Christ shines even brighter. Remember the words of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. We need to think the way that John the Baptist thinks. We need to think the way that David thinks. His humility reminds us of our status in this world. He uses the term strangers and sojourners. What is that? Stranger and sojourner is a man without property. Therefore, he doesn't have any security of the things that he has built up himself. I like to remind people that I'm an alien in this country. When I tell kids that, they often look for the little antennas um, that I'm hiding. Some of you remind me that I'm a foreigner at times when I speak correctly. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just what I'm about. Um, but, but sojourners and strangers are those who live in an area only by the good graces of the citizens that live there, that occupy it. This was Israel for much of its history. And even after possessing the land, Israel was to have that attitude that it was not theirs. Remembering that the land really belonged to the Lord. Even though they had this enormous wealth before them that they had given, it wasn't even theirs. In his very nature, man is only a resident alien and a sojourner on earth. It's like the old gospel song many of you know. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Or, or the old spiritual, I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. Even the earth is the Lord's. Even... Even the earth is the Lord's, and and while we can buy dirt, it's still not ours. When when David thinks about who God is, that allows him to think properly about who he is, which allows him to think properly about what he also has, and how to have a biblical view of his possessions. Thomas Akempis, the, the Augustinian monk in the 14th century, wrote this. He says, Try, moreover, to turn your heart from the things visible, And bring yourself to the things invisible. David is leaving a legacy. And yet he's saying, even though he's standing in front of this mountain of wealth, he's saying, I've got nothing that I'm leaving behind. I can take no credit because it all comes from the Lord. Here's a wonderful truth for you this morning. Nothing you have belongs to you. Your home, it's not yours. Your talent and your skills, they're not yours. Your bank account, not yours. Your family, not yours. And you're saying, well, hey, I've worked for all this stuff. That's great. Congratulations. But have you ever considered where the skill and the talents that you have used to earn all those things came from? Do you honestly believe that your health is ultimately because of you? If that's the case, then how come doctors, bodybuilders, vegans, how come they all die? All you have comes from the Lord. Every breath, every penny, every moment, nothing belongs to you. It is His. Matthew twenty five fourteen. turn with me there. We can see it's all about the kingdom. What's the point, right? Because like David, we can use these things for the glory and honor of God. God has entrusted us with his possessions. So, so it's all about the kingdom, but you should be thinking about this parable of the talents. Matthew 25, We'll begin in verse 14. If it's all God's, what are we supposed to do with it? Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. For to everyone who, is, who has will be given, and he who, who will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant out into utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We are to be stewards of the resources. It is Our stewardship is a matter of our faithfulness not the results it's a matter of what we do with what god has entrusted to us but we as recipients of god's abundant grace can't help but respond with anything other than lavish joyful generosity if i were to coin a term in fact that's why we're in the midst of a building campaign Last Sunday, it was announced that we're essentially at the, at the $1 million mark in, in, our, in our fundraising. Why would we make this kind of investment? Because we're looking to maximize our resources for the work of the kingdom. We have the kingdom of God in mind. You might say, well, why would we invest in a building that's eventually going to crumble and burn up anyways? What a waste. I might as well spend that, something I, that money on something I can enjoy now or give it to my grandchildren or, or invest it somewhere else. Will this building that we're in crumble? Yes. One day it will. Will whatever structure we end up building fall apart? I hate to say it, but likely yes. Think about all these resources that David gathered. This was for the temple that Solomon would build with every resource at his disposal. But is that temple still standing? No. It was destroyed. And when Zerubbabel led the rebuilding of the temple, it wasn't as lavish, but it was certainly an impressive sight. And yet, that temple is also no longer standing. There are fragments of a wall. Some of you have been there to see them. But Israel was faithful to invest in the things of the Lord and his kingdom, which will have no end. And that involved building a temple. Because that was what the Lord asked them to do. They were practically applying the New Testament command that would come in Romans 12, offering worship, worship which was wholly sacrificial unto the Lord. Nothing held back. And that is what we are called to do as well this is what the Lord wanted them to do with His resources. It wasn't their call. I, I won't go at length into the whole issue of tithing, but let me just say that tithing was the old equivalent, Old Testament equivalent of our taxes. The New Testament has no room for a 10 10% percent tithe. One hundred percent of it belongs to the Lord. It's not a budgeting issue. It's a heart issue. There's no tangible way to see where, uh, there is, there's no more tangible way to see where your heart lies than where you invest your finances. Jesus himself said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So with a kingdom of God focus, what is David declaring here? He declares the praise, a kingdom praise. He, He, He declares that legacy of of the provision of the kingdom of God and concludes with a final lesson on on how to leave a kingdom-focused legacy. We need a kingdom-focused praise, a kingdom-focused provision, and a kingdom-focused petition in verses 17 through 19. At this point, it's pretty bold when you think about it for David to be making any kind of petition before the Lord. But he closes the prayer with two petitions. One might think he's being a little bit audacious to ask for something more from God. But David's not asking for anything for himself. Except that God would keep him and his people in such a celebrative and grateful mood. They are the seed of the patriarchs with whom God has made an unconditional covenant with. And and the promises of blessing within that covenant required a loyal obedience to him. And that is what David seeks. So he says, he petitions on behalf of the nations. He says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here Offering freely and joyously to you. Knowing that God examines the heart and is pleased with uprightness. David has had given all of these offerings willingly and with honest intent. And he joyfully watched God's people contribute willfully and joyfully themselves. He's excited for them. And so he wants to ask the Lord to sustain that excitement. But God has tested their inner motives. David noticed that and he has observed the joy with which they've given so sacrificially. It's, it's exciting for them all. David is not saying that it is because the people have been such of a mind that God is obliged to them. Rather, their attitudes and actions have testified to their recognition that Yahweh is the one worthy of all the praise that is necessary. Not David. He's imploring the Lord to keep them walking in that right path. He appeals on their behalf to God's relationship with the patriarchs of Israel. He says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. Israel had received a promise long ago. They were the benefactors of God's favor toward him and therefore had been able to give and bring gifts. They recognized as the hymn says, praise is his gracious choice. David's Prayer was that this desire to give willingly to the Lord in return for all the past favors would remain in their hearts forever and ever, and that God might keep their hearts loyal to him. And after he petitions on behalf of the nation, he's he petitions on behalf of Solomon, his son. In the beginning of chapter 29, David acknowledges that Solomon is young and inexperienced. Nevertheless, he will be the one to take the throne, and David sounds like a concerned father here. He says, Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he might com- keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. David's special supplication was that the Lord himself would establish a perfect heart in both Israel and Solomon who would be the one to lead them so that God's commandment might be kept and the temple built. Nothing, though, that Solomon's, notice, though, that that Solomon's keeping the law is is set alongside the building of the temple. These two things are bound together. A temple without wholehearted devotion to the law was an empty gesture. It's the same for us. All our works are, Without wholehearted devotion, mean nothing. The task ahead of Solomon was massive. Only those r- actions rising out of a deep inward devotion would be sufficient to carry him through this project. David could have left Israel with his own resume as a legacy. When David's monumental last words were prayed, He left a kingdom-focused legacy for the people of Israel. What did they do? They responded appropriately and reverently and, and with great celebratory worship. Following in verses 20, Then David said to all the assembly, kind of repeats what he started off, Bless the Lord your God! And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bowls, one thousand rams, and a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. They had a party. A kingdom of God focused party. Well, what does that mean for us today? We aren't building a temple. But we are called to live joyfully, generously, sacrificially. We are supposed to live lives of worship because none of what we have is our own. We, we look to a heavenly kingdom where our citizenship lives and we make investments in that kingdom where Christ reigns. In the New Testament, Jesus is revealed as the personification of the kingdom of God, uniting both its human and those divine dimensions all in one. Ephesians 121 tells us now that he sits above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and that he is head over everything for the the church, which is the body. It all comes together in Christ. One commentator remarks, the church... Like David's Israel, must put its confidence in this kingdom, even though the kingdoms of this world seem to be more evident and more pressing. But God's kingdom, too, has its earthly characteristics, such as the generous giving of the people, Because this kingdom is more enduring, Christians are called, like the chronicler's contemporaries, to be companions to those in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are all ours in Jesus. They may also wait confidently for God's intervention, whether it comes in this life or at the second coming. Both the chronicler and the New Testament writers would testify to that to submit to the reality of, of God's kingdom provides a secure framework for the whole of life. Let me repeat that. New Testament writers would testify that to submit to the reality of God's kingdom provides a secure framework for the whole of life. Such an awareness, according to David, is gained most readily through prayer and praise. I opened up by talking about famous last words and how they leave a legacy. I recently heard a story of about a young man who lived some time ago in Scotland. I don't know exactly when. But I believe he perfect, his life perfectly encapsulates what we've looked at this morning. This young Scottish man, his name was John. He had some sores on his tongue one morning and that just wouldn't heal. For weeks and weeks. So he went to the doctor. After careful examination, it was explained to the young man and his parents that it was indeed cancer. In a compassionate manner, the doctor explained that the only way to save his life would be surgery and to remove his tongue. I want you to understand, John, that if the surgery is successful, you will never be able to speak again. He paused and then added, we must do the surgery as soon as possible. Today. John and his parents were shocked and saddened by the news. They came into the doctor expecting to go home with some medicine but instead they stayed for a life-altering surgery. The doctors and the nurses got prepared. John was helped onto the operating table. Before his parents left the room, the doctor asked if there was anything he wished to say before the operation would begin. For a moment, a shadow crossed the face of John. Tears, tears, coming down the corner of his eyes, as he considered that that he would never again speak another word. Never again would he be able to praise in word or in song his beloved Lord and Savior, the one who had done so much for him. But soon the tears stopped and a smile lit up his face. A heavenly joy filled his heart. He began to sing. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. I can't imagine what that sounded like. But with great feeling, he sang the second verse. Before he reached the third verse, not an eye of those who stood around the bed was dry. His heart was in the song. His love for his precious Savior clearly evident. But then came the last verse. And as he sang it, it's as if it was heard for the first time. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. John was given the gas to breathe in to make him sleep. The doctors performed the operation. but he never regained consciousness. He was taken to heaven to eternally praise and glorify his Redeemer. That is a kingdom-focused legacy. Let's pray together. Lord, we desire to have a heart like David, a heart after your own, that focuses Upon the kingdom of God and all that we do, may our legacy be one that is kingdom-focused in its praise, kingdom-focused in its provision, and kingdom-focused in all our petitions before you. Lord, may we leave lives with a lasting legacy, not of our own, but ones that extol of your power to save. For you alone are worthy, O God, our creator. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.